You're listening to Museum Unlocked, recorded at the University of Colorado Museum of Natural History here in Boulder, a place to be curious and be inspired. I'm Pat Kostelik, director of the museum. These podcasts have been created in the time of COVID and are designed to help you gain a behind-the-scenes view into the work and the people of the CU Museum. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to episode one of Museum Unlocked, investigating the careers and journeys of the people behind the CU Museum. I'm your host, Carlton Gover, and I am joined by my co-host, Rebecca Kuhn. And today we are interviewing Dr. William Taylor, um, Curator of Archaeology at the University of Colorado Museum of Natural History and Assistant Professor in the Department of Anthropology. Dr. Taylor, thank you so much for being on with us today. How are you doing? Hey, it's good to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. Of course. So, Dr. Taylor, you are the Curator of Archaeology here at the CU Museum of Natural History and an Assistant Professor at the Department of Anthropology. Um, could you briefly describe what your work looks like in these roles? Yeah, so there's a lot of different roles um, here. I should point out that I am only one of two curators of archaeology here at the museum, along with uh, my colleague Samantha Flad. Um, my work is uh, pretty multifaceted. Um, I teach uh, here in the Museum and Field Studies program and in the anthropology department. I do research, uh, my own research, which is archaeological work in collections and in the field, both uh, here in the States and overseas. Um, And I help um, the folks in in the museum here with museum work. So that means um, helping to take care of collections, helping to manage and facilitate research on the collections, helping to... um, you know, design uh, and implement exhibits um, and to help share my research and the research of others here in the museum with the public. Um, So that means um, things like family day events. It means um, talking to kids after school and sometimes, you know, doing things like this podcast. So, um, you put it all um, together and there's quite a lot of different duties. There's also a lot of emails. I think I've read about (laughs) eight (laughs) hours of emails a day. (laughs) Right. So um, family day here at the CU uh, Museum, what did did that entail for you? Because you just started um, as a professor and curator here in, in January, correct? Yeah. So my position here at CU started in August of 2019. The first month or two of that was uh i was wrapping up some field research overseas so uh, i I really only arrived here in a official way probably the end of october our first kind of family day event that i was part of um, was in january of this year and um it's pretty neat we get um i mean in the pre the pre-covid era um we get to see a lot of uh, folks from the community come into the museum with their kids and get to kind of get their hands on some little aspects of of science. We had a little educational activity about horses and horse domestication, which is a big focus of my research. Right. And so uh, I remember that family day, you were, you were showing um, kids how to make Spanish-style horse bits out of rope. And as you mentioned, that horses are, are a big part of your research. So could you tell us a little bit more about um, the research and how it involves horses and horse domestication? Yeah, so um, 
I'm what you would call an archaeozoologist, which means broadly that I study the relationships between people and animals um, in the past. Mostly what that involves is looking at bones, um, animal bones, um, which are the primary source of information that we have about those relationships. And, and specifically, my big focus is understanding kind of when, why, and how animals were domesticated and how the, those domestic relationships impacted human societies. And my um, kind of key focus in that regard has been horses. Um, so I grew up in Montana. Um, horses are kind of an important piece of my own family's history, and they're definitely an important piece of the history of um, Colorado and, and the Rocky Mountains and the Great Plains. Um, so an interest in that um, has kind of stimulated some of my archaeological research. Got you. So uh, would you say that growing up in Montana and being around horses was like a huge motivating factor behind your research? It, it was, but in a very like... Um, uh, that motivating force was always kind of percolating in the background. The proximate cause for me being interested in, in horse domestication was one of my earliest archaeological experiences was excavating a 2,500-year-old horse burial. And uh, it was just one of the coolest um, experiences of my life. And that event got me hooked, right? And so the the overlap between studying horse domestication and kind of learning a little bit about the, the factors and the culture, um, you know, that were, that, that I grew up in and were kind of shaped by this definitely gave some extra juice, um, to that interest. But what immediately caused that focus was just being a part of a research project that was digging into the origins of human horse relationships. You know, one of the world's first horse cultures, it just, it was so cool and participating in it was so physically exciting that that um, prompted me to kind of change my trajectory a little bit as a student. Where that, was that um, excavation? That was in at? the Altai Mountains of Western Mongolia. That's quite the trip. And that was that during uh, your undergraduate experience at yeah. Carleton College? Carleton? I did that last time. Uh, yeah, it was just a, a week or two after I graduated from, from my undergrad. Um, and I had an opportunity to head out there. I had worked for a summer or two as a student for free. I say worked. I did work. They didn't pay me for the work. Um, I slept on my sister's couch and ate noodles um, for the Smithsonian um, the Arctic Study Center at the Smithsonian. Uh, a really wonderful man by the name of Bill Fitzhugh um, kind of helped me get started in archaeology, giving me a chance to work in his office there. And then the next summer, when they didn't have any field work that the summers that I was out there, so um, the next summer when they had a project in Mongolia, um, they offered... Um, to take me along and for the first time they actually paid me a little bit of money so uh, that that was how I ended up out there awesome Mongolia sounds like a lot of fun um, so you got you got excited with horses or, or studying horses with that first study in, in Mongolia 
and that's kind of what captivated you to begin this. So um, would you say that like field, port, uh, field work, especially when researching horse domestication or, or the spread of horses is extremely important? Yeah, you know, field work is really important for a lot of reasons. Obviously, as a field researcher, many of us are addicted to the sense of adventure, right? And the chance to get away from daily life a little bit, to get outside. Um, but there are other reasons that field work is, is really important. From an archaeologist standpoint, we are conducting research in order to understand not just the past, but we're, we're conducting it to understand the present, right? Um, there is a lot of knowledge that comes from understanding the landscape, understanding the animals and the people that are a part of it, and from experiencing things in that landscape, um, the way that folks who lived there in the past might have, right? You learn more from conducting research on a subject when you're out there in the field. I mean, I would say that most of our big discoveries have emerged out of the partnership that comes from working with folks who know the area better than you do. They know the present better than you do. When you're studying domestic animals, they know the animals better than you do. Um, and by sort of pairing your skills as a researcher with the knowledge of folks that are there now, and by understanding the the landscape and the way it works, you know, the way that that weather works, the way that animals work, the way they use the landscape, all this stuff kind of, it, uh, you can pick it up through a textbook, um, but it doesn't register with you the same way. There's a, there's a level of background learning that happens from archaeological fieldwork, especially when you're studying animals and the relationship between people and their environments that you, you can't pick up through a, studying a collection. And how has that research focus changed? So you started, well, as we've said several times now with Mongolia, but now that you're here in the United States teaching in the American Rockies, how has uh, your, your research adapted from studying like the earliest horse domestication to arguably one of the, the latest forms of, of the adoption and use of horses? Yeah, as you mentioned, one of our um, big shifts in focus over the years has been to bring what we've learned from almost a decade of working on the study of the earliest horse domestication and the early relationships between people and horses in the steppes of Eurasia, and to bring the tools and the information and the, the insights that we've gained from that back over to the Americas, where the relationship with people and horses might be different, and the domestic portion of that relationship is maybe a little shorter, but it's probably equally, if not much more significant to um, the history, to the way that ecologies and cultures have been shaped by horses. Um, and we are now um, in Colorado living in a world that is built right out of that history. By studying the earliest chapters of human-horse relationships um, in Eurasia, we developed a lot of tools that we can make kind of horse bones speak elements of that story that, um, that you wouldn't be able to find from 
a historical document um, that wouldn't necessarily be obvious to you from another source of information. And so we've we've managed to expand the kinds of things that you can learn from animal skeletal remains. So that additional range of information just hasn't been brought to bear on the early history of horses in North America, largely because this is a subject that is considered part of history, right? Which means that we study it through looking at documents. History is not a flawless endeavor. It brings with it biases. It brings with it gaps. Um, And so in general, right, in places um, like Colorado or Montana, the early history of people and horses is written largely by European observers who often tend to confuse their impressions with the truth and tend to assume things that may or may not be true about the folks that they were uh, describing or discussing and their relationship with horses. And so horse remains from archaeological sites give us a tool to kind of fill in those gaps, maybe correct some of those incorrect assumptions, and to try to learn about how horses shaped societies from the remains of horses themselves rather from, rather than from a text that might carry with it particular ideas. We have to approach it a little bit different way, and we certainly have different kinds of information available to us when we're studying that um, in this part of the world. But we've uh, developed some tools that that help us along the way. And when you pair them with something like historical records um, or, um, you know, this kind of ethno histories, these really rich living traditions that are available, now all of a sudden you've got this multifaceted abundance of information of all different kinds that can potentially tell us way more um, of certain kinds of information than we would learn from from studying bones or or history by themselves. And what are those tools? That you're One on? of the focuses of my early research was specifically trying to understand how does a horse bone, right? Um, we've got a skull for those just listening. There's a nice horse head here seated next to me on the table. How does the relationship between people and horses actually manifest in something that we can see archaeologically? And most of the time, what what we can see is dead horses. What are those tools uh, that we can use to trace the relationship? Well, a lot of what, what we ended up doing is going to museums and looking at the collections of museums, not as you might think necessarily for ancient horse remains, but for the remains of an animal, whether it's modern or ancient, that we know a lot about their life. So was this a wild horse? Uh, Was this a domestic horse? Is this a zebra that lived in a zoo? Was this a war horse that belonged to a particular general? um, By sort of bit by bit compiling this source this data set of horses that with a known life history we knew what they did what kind of equipment they did it with why when how um, started to develop a toolkit for recognizing the way that humans impact the skeleton right and so now we we have a set of tools that we can identify for example through um, let's say we're able to make a 3d model of of a horse skull. From that 3D model, we might be able to identify here a very thin, shallow depression on the 
the bridge of the nose here that's caused by use of a halter or a, the nose band of a bridle. And I'm going to stop banging this around because I think it's making a fair amount of noise. But um, we know that heavy exertion now can make the um, the interior part of, a, you know, this, what we call the premaxilla, um, it can make it kind of remodel in a way that indicates, hey, this horse was used for a lot of work of one way or another. We can we can find out that the, the mouthpiece of a bridle, if it's made of metal, might damage um, a horse's teeth in a certain way. And if that horse was used for riding, the angle of that damage might be concentrated on the lower jaw. And if it was used to pull a cart, it might be kind of concentrated more towards the upper part of the jaw, right? So th these are just little examples of the way that through comparison of these you know, natural history collections and, and archaeological collections of known kind of life histories that we built a set of criteria that will allow us to kind of um, Sherlock Holmes these horse skeletons and identify um, what people were doing with them. And then we take that set of tools and, and criteria and we look at horse bones from the past and, and try to piece information together. Now, we, we've expanded that toolkit to include things like um, study of stable isotopes, which will tell us, you know, what a horse was eating or where it was m maybe moved with people over the years, or um, DNA might be able to, to help us learn um, when people developed a, a horse with a certain kind of coat color or, you know, so we, over the years, we've, we've tried to expand from simply studying the bones to studying, you know, the biomolecules stored inside uh, bones and teeth and what clues we might be able to learn from those as well. And how have you changed or, or included these myriad of tools and technologies into the classroom? Because part of your job here at uh, CU is also, as a professor, both anthropology and in museum studies. Um, shout out to the MF, MFS, MSF program. The Museum and Field Studies program. Exactly. So, and Dr. Taylor, um, you taught your first class here at CU here in the uh, spring, and that was the uh, Emerging Technologies in Museums? Yeah, so um, for better or for worse, for MFS students who, who had to be a part of that class, um, I uh, developed through my work a fascination with 3D technology and 3D scanning, right? So the first reason that I did that is that I wanted to learn things about the shape of a horse skull um, that you can't learn necessarily just by looking at it or measuring it with a ruler. Um, over time, I, I learned that 3D information is an incredible tool for preserving archaeological material. It's an incredible tool for sharing archaeological material with, with others. Um, and I started to become interested in the ways that other technology like 3D printing, right, might be able to integrate into the work of research. Um, and then from out of that, um, the way that it might be integrated into museums. And so that research connection is sort of the source of my interest in the role of technology in museums. Obviously, there are a lot of different ways that technology intersects with both the research and the museum world. The more time that I've spent doing research, the more I've realized that research does not end with um, you writing your paper or conducting your analysis or, or whatever else. In fact, it extends all the way through um, 
into the museum curation process and into the public outreach process. It's it's really underscored to me the the importance of um, embracing the different kind of things that technology can do uh, in that process. Um, and you know, hopefully, I think it, it's it's become an increasing focus of our museum here is to kind of warmly embrace those tools and see if we can give students some of those skill sets, especially now as, um, you know, we're museums are closing their doors and um, some of the more traditional um, tools that we have to conduct our work um, as museums are sort of drying up. Um, the technology remains one of the most important ways that we can we can share our work with the public and kind of fulfill our mission. So it is definitely um, a thread that is woven through all the way from the research to every facet of museum work. I think the significance of those kinds of tools is only growing. So so we're hoping that we can kind of embrace them and and hopefully share um, share those skills with with our students. Fantastic. And uh, right before we wrap up here, um, you know, one of those technologies that you mentioned was, was the 3D scanning and 3D printing. And as we're going into a, a COVID environment for museums, which are extremely reliant on in-person visitation, how does your research and, and with these technologies um, assist and, and make the museum better for it? Yeah, well, um, you know, you can't fully replace an in-person experience with an object, right? I mean, there is no, um, no matter how immersive you make technology, unless perhaps we find a way to go full matrix at some point, technology is not going to replace the experience of being next to a physical object. But 3D technology does give us different kinds of information and it gives us an ability to experience an object in a different way than even a traditional museum exhibit would. So even if we didn't have the the doors closed because of COVID, right, you'd be hard pressed to find a museum that would let you uh, walk up to your objects, your hope diamond or whatever it is, and just grab it, turn it around, um, touch it, play with it and set it back down, right? I mean, there are limits that we impose on objects and they're there for a reason, right? Because these things are are finite, fragile. We have a lot of people coming through and 3D technology allows us to do some of that um, in a way that you couldn't do with a physical object. So um, if I make a 3D scan of a horse skull, I can put it online. Someone can spin it around, um, look at it, and engage with the shape and the angles in a way that they might not otherwise be able to do. There are other things that you literally can't see with your naked eye, but with the controlled lighting, the surface um, kind of modeling that you get on a 3D scan that, that you can not only see, but perhaps we could label it um, you know, point it out or emphasize it in a, in a particular way. So they are a really useful tool for allowing people to still learn from 
ob- some people uh, recently were using the term object-based learning, right? And there's a lot of education and there's a lot of museum aspects of museum exhibits that are really about um, taking an object and seeing what we can learn from it, right? And 3D scans provide us a way to do that. Obviously, it's not the same kind of way, but we compare scanning with printing, right? And all of a sudden, we have a whole range of, of things you can do with an object that are partially replacing and also adding new wrinkles to what you could do with a traditional museum object. So um, they do provide us with a way to continue our work, um, whether that be for you know, classrooms that need to learn, they need to study what fossils belong to a particular time period, right? And a picture isn't cutting it, right? Um, that information they need is three-dimensional. Whether we want to share some of our important collections with people that can't come through the halls. Um, so there's a lot of ways that, that this is one particular kind of arrow in our quiver and a, and a powerful one. Well, awesome. Well, on that, I think we are wrapped up with the first segment of the first episode of Museum Unlocked. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with part two uh, here with Dr. William Taylor. Hi, my name is Jim Huckle. I'm the senior educator at the University of Colorado Museum of Natural History. The CU Museum creates exhibits and educational programs to foster curiosity and appreciation of the natural world and of human cultures. If we weren't in the middle of a pandemic, we would invite you to come visit our free museum on the Boulder campus, which features five exhibit halls, including paleontology, anthropology, and the Bio Lounge, a place designed especially for students. In non-pandemic times, we host lectures and programs, provide guided tours and workshops for groups of all ages, distribute hands-on educational materials to classrooms across Colorado, and offer hands-on programs for families and children, like family days and mornings at the museum. Until we can serve you in person, you can explore online exhibits, downloadable nature guides, family activities, at-home teaching resources, and even Zoom backgrounds on our Museum from Home section of our website. Explore with us at www.colorado.edu forward slash CU Museum. The University of Colorado Museum of Natural History houses the largest collections of natural history objects in the Rocky Mountain region. Currently, more than 5 million objects are here in our collections across a, a wide array of disciplines, including anthropology, botany, entomology, paleontology, and zoology. The collections include the world's oldest documented Navajo textile, the best collections in the world of lichens from the Galapagos Islands, and Colorado's largest collection of bees. Our 11 curators also conduct research and are active faculty members in the departments of ecology and evolutionary biology, anthropology, and geology here at the University of Colorado Boulder. Hello, my name is Ashley Mugley, a recent museum and field studies graduate from CU Boulder, where I focused on anthropology collections management. For my final project, I focused on identifying unassociated funerary objects and collections and assisting our new curator, Dr. Sam Platt, in preparing collections for consultations. I chose CU to continue my education due to its reputation, access to a wide network of museum professionals, and the importance of community collaboration while caring for cultural materials. The University of Colorado Museum of Natural History is home to a two-year master's degree in museum and field studies, 
as well as a professional certificate program. Learn more at colorado.edu slash cumuseum slash MFS. Welcome back to episode one of Museum Unlocked. We are here with Dr. William Taylor, investigating his career and his journey um, as a curator and assistant professor here at CU. Thanks again for being with us, Dr. Taylor. I think now we're going to shift into how you got to where you are. So you told us about this really pivotal experience that you had doing field work for the first time in Mongolia. And it sounded like that was um, a really a big turning point for you in your career path. I'm wondering if you could describe to us, right before you went on that field experience, what were you imagining for your future? And then when you left that field experience, what was it that you took from it that has influenced to where you are now? You know, my journey into archaeology, I've sort of overly dramatized this particular moment in Mongolia, right, where I got the chance to excavate a horse burial. It was it was very, very special. But the significance of that moment was primarily shifting me to which piece, uh, which little corner of archaeology that I wanted to be a part of. Um, the, the truth is that I, I wished to be an archaeologist from the moment that I could sort of read. I think since I was a, a, a very, very young kid, I always wanted to be an archaeologist. And I lost track of that ambition in my teens because I didn't have examples in front of me of that being an actual career that you could choose, right? So uh, when I was really little, I, w I wanted to be an Egyptologist. I wanted to be in Indiana Jones. And it was as an undergraduate, after I had essentially completed my degree in political science, by the way, it's totally unrelated, um, that I took an elective class in archaeology. And in doing that, I met a young professor, Jorge Bravo, who was an archaeologist. He was, there he was, he was doing it. And I started to realize, oh man, like maybe this is something that I could, I could actually do. And so I, I spent a, a summer doing a field school, like, like all young uninitiated ar wannabe archaeologists end up doing. And I got to spend the summer at Yellowstone National Park doing archaeology and uh, took a couple more courses and realized that Actually, this is a real, this is a real thing that people can do and they can get paid for. And so I just started to pursue it whatever way that I could find out how to do it. It's kind of one of these things, I think, with many folks who find kind of what they're passionate about is that you find yourself kind of wading in a little deeper, a little deeper. And the deeper you go, the more that you like what you see. Um, and so for me, yeah, the trip to Mongolia, I think, was definitely the, okay, we're in deep moment where I was so stimulated and so fascinated and just energized and happy that I knew, okay, this is, this is the segment of this thing that I, re I really want to spend my time on. Um, but the seeds of it were always there. And I think a lot of, you know, younger professionals, we probably all have that, that little germ of something that was sparked, you know, many years ago in our childhood and the world kind of beats it out of you a little bit and many kinds of science or you know even museum jobs um, people would might be shepherding 
younger people away from this kind of career because of impracticality or, you know, it's not a lucrative business by any means. And so the pipeline doesn't send a lot of people down this particular path. And there may be good reasons for that. I mean, there's not a lot of jobs either, right? Um, But I think for me, it was really, really important to actually have a mentor, a person in front of me that was not 60 years old. You know, he was 30 and he he had basically just come out of school and he was good at what he did and he was being paid. And I thought, like, this guy is amazing. <laughs> I can do I that can... too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And just for the sake of context, do you mind telling us how old you are? Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I turned 31. Congratulations. Um... Uh, thanks. It no longer feels <laughs> like an accomplishment. Um, um, so... There are so many things that I want to dig into with you. Um, one of them being that role of mentorship. So it sounds like um, Jorge Bravo, as well as Bill Fitzhugh at the Smithsonian, um, probably played really influential mentorship roles for you. Yeah, absolutely. And now you're in a position where not only are you conducting scientific research about zooarchaeology um, and working as a curator um, with museum collections, but part of your role is also to teach. And I'd love to hear more about your perspectives on, on that part of your role of getting to work with students in a university setting. Yeah, well, um, just for a little bit of context, when I finished my degree, I worked for three years as a research scientist. I lived and breathed science and research, and that position, as as wonderful as it was, was lacking, to some degree, the ability to meaningfully um, teach and connect with students. Now, there were opportunities and I, you know, there's some really smart students who, who I got to work with and there were folks that came to the field to have their kind of summer field work experience with me, like in Mongolia, for example. But what I realized through the little sort of nibbles of opportunity to do things like teaching and outreach in that position is that, the, you know, those are in many ways what gives science value and meaning right and so it is it is moderately unfulfilling to do nothing but science if you don't have the chance to share and to pass something of meaning on to younger people and for me i wouldn't be doing what i do if it hadn't been for that just unprompted sort of uh kindness generosity and investment of time and energy that I got from people who were at a more advanced stage. And so for me, it's a huge, exciting draw to be at a university and to be at a museum and have an opportunity to do those things. Now, I'll say that it's certainly a different skill set, right? And it's there's a lot of learning that you have to do in order to become that mentor in, an, in a younger person's life. And sometimes you're you know, you're mentoring somebody and you might not even, they um, they might not be younger than you, <laughs> right? Th- there's a learning curve involved with teaching and guidance, um, but it is probably the most fulfilling aspect of being a research scientist. So um, I'm really grateful that that's something that I have the opportunity to, to do here. That's wonderful. So I know that Carlton, yeah. Yeah, so... 
Um, for those that are listening, I am uh, Will's, uh, Dr. Taylor's assistant in the archaeozoology lab, and, <clears throat> and uh, Dr. Taylor is only three years older than, than I am. I'm turning 28 in three days. And um, having a mentor such as yourself so close in age is, is really, that's been new to me. So kind of that similar experience that you were talking about, both my advisors, both from a master's and PhD, are in their upper 60s, and most of my uh, professors are, are older than me in, in decades. And uh, the more people that I'm around that are in their 30s or either graduate students or postdocs, and having you come in has been especially beneficial to um, my career um, just based on your knowledge and how, and not, it's not your youth per se, but more of your, um, you being in tune with a lot of these tech, emerging technologies and seeing the benefit of having them and, and showing me how to, how to do a lot of these things and really taking me and then you're not, you know, on my dissertation committee or anything, but you're just naturally been mentoring me in a lot of these aspects, both in archeology, span but also in the museum world. And it's been extremely like having you, I think has been, um, a huge boost to my to my graduate career, and I think having you as as a mentor um, will have um, will kind of ricochet throughout my career, and, and keeping me in tune with a lot of these these new and exciting technologies and methods that other my other advisors are completely unfamiliar with. Well, uh, I mean that's very very kind of you to say, um, but I I do think there is an advantage to having somebody that you can connect with um, who has been through it more recently right um i was really really fortunate to have my one of my two primary grad advisors be dr emily jones who the first year i was in grad school she was not a tenure track professor she was visiting and she was hired as a tenure track professor my second year and so i was with her on her journey right through the early stages of being a faculty member. Um, I got to watch her set up a zooarchaeology lab. Um, she got to advise me on what it was like to get through graduate school, having just been through. And I think the problem with academia is that it changes really fast. Um, it's a hard world to navigate. The technologies, as, as you were saying, Carlton, they change a lot the landscape changes a lot. So, I mean, some of my mentors like, you know, Bill, for example, they finished their degree and they got hired at the Smithsonian. Nowadays, you know, that when the Smithsonian hires a new curator, you might have, I don't know, hundreds, uh, if not a thousand applicants for, for that job, right? You're going to have to have a a publication record a mile long to be considered for, you know, certain positions, now because the environment has just changed so much. So for me, I was really grateful to have another mentor who was not that much older than I was because she was able to help me navigate the nuts and bolts of just trying to, how do you put one foot in front of the other in this terrifying landscape of trying to become a professional archeologist? It's not necessarily fun um, and it's definitely not easy. And so it's cool to have that I think um, if it wasn't for Emily, I wouldn't have been able to find my way through that. And um, so, yeah, I'm, I would be really happy if I can, you know, serve in that role for you too. I imagine that it's not just Carlton who feels that way. I saw some head nodding from another student who's in the room. <laughs> um, so 
at the young age of 31, you're an accomplished research scientist, curator here at the University of Colorado Museum of Natural History, an assistant professor in the anthropology department. And um, by most people's standards, we would say you're a pretty successful guy. I'm wondering how you define success for yourself personally. That's an interesting question. And it's interesting to hear you say that because I would say the more that you, the more time that you spend in academia, the more you end up feeling uh, like you are sort of struggling, failing, or otherwise inadequate. Um, it's not a discipline that gives you a lot of validation, right? I think that uh, you eventually learn to define your success um, in a couple of different ways. Um, from a research perspective, right, you ultimately you want your ideas to make an impact on the way people think about the world. And for me as an archaeologist, right, I want to push the envelope forward about what people understand about the past and how it's shaped the present. And so for me, I don't think, um, of course, I, I, I consider it a huge success to have a paycheck and a stable job. That's, I mean, for me, for most of my early career, that was like the goal. And so now that I, I have a permanent place to be, I think that's fantastic. But really the goal um, from a research, research perspective is to make a difference in the way people think and to get us closer to understanding the truth. And so it's quite a hard thing to define. Um, and it's constantly, uh, you know, you're reevaluating your old work and it makes you cringe um, at your lack of understanding, right? Um, and and you see, the, the more that you're in the system, you see that a paper uh, might be accepted into a prestigious journal or it might be circulated to a wide audience. And those things don't correlate necessarily with the quality of the work or how correct or true it is, right? There's so many other things that go into it. And so you have to ultimately end up sort of defining success by your own standards of how well you think you're doing at expanding our understanding of the world. And, and that's quite hard is a quite hard thing to do. I think it's much easier to define success, for example, as a mentor, right? You 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 see your students um, make a breakthrough or succeed um, at something, take an important step in their personal career, and that's tangible and it's quite quite rewarding. So yeah, I th I think um, it can be extremely hard to settle on a metric of success, and if you you know, people do, they, they might do so for the wrong reasons because um, working in different, very different academic environments from the University of New Mexico to the Max Planck Institute, right? You see that accolades are sometimes given for the wrong reasons. Um, time and attention from people is not the same thing as good quality work. And your platform makes a huge difference in how you are perceived, right? So I think ultimately the goal is to um, to have your work speak for itself and to mean something to, you know, future scholars. That's great. Um, so in, wrapped up in that, I heard you 
mention failure in certain ways and that the academic environment um, doesn't necessarily give a lot of accolades. In my position here at the CU Museum as exhibit and program developer, I have the privilege of working with um, a lot of undergraduate students who help run my education programs and working with graduate students as well. And I hear their struggles with wanting to be successful and having such a confined view of what success means and having so many things that feel like a failure or a struggle to them. And I think there's a lot of value in our, our young adults seeing people who aren't that much older than them be successful and see us fail. And I'm wondering if you could mention any moments that you've had that at the time felt like failures, but were actually really kind of pivotal points in you maybe redefining success or finding um, a, a turning point to kind of partially to help our young adults understand the, the value of failure and how they might redefine those moments that feel kind of crushing to them. Yeah. I mean, um, my answer to this might not be all that typical, um, for an academic, but, um, to be honest with you, my, my understanding of failure and its role in my life changed, uh, very drastically when I, in my first year of college, um, I went to a, a very small school in Montana and, you know, in that small school, um, it's, you know, it was a great school. I had great educators and stuff, but classes were never really all that hard. And I also, uh, I played football. Um, I was good at football. Our team was really good and everything seemed like it was great and it was really easy. Um, when I went to college, I, um, I played football in college and I went from being the superstar to being a joke. I was, I was put in a position as a freshman where our, our team was awful. Um, and then I, I was thrown into a position where I, at the end of the year I had to, to play, uh, and I was awful and I embarrassed myself and our team did poorly and I would go to practice and I will get whipped by the the other, you know, sophomore, junior, senior linemen. And then we would go watch it on film, right? We would watch in the game the video of you messing up and then the coach would call it out in front of the whole team, right? And this was an absolutely mortifying experience for me because we never did that in high school. We never watched uh, individual frames of you failing and costing your teammates, right? Some sort of outcome in the game. It was, ex it was almost traumatic, you know, to, to be that confronted with, with your failure. And I, I thought about quitting the team after that season. I was like, this is, I mean, it was really a hard wake up call. Um, and the same thing was happening to me in my academics, right? Um, I all of a sudden had classes that I was struggling with extremely uh, i was having to get tutored in math and i was the i was the guy that you know dinked around in math class to throw you know spit wads or whatever because it was all so easy um and the two things were quite related for me i had um i had to realize that 
this the reason we did the film frame by frame of your mistakes is that that's how you got better right and over time i had guidance from people on the team and coaches who uh made me recognize that this is actually a tool for you to recognize like there are things in life that are just really really hard and you're not going to be good at them um and that's an opportunity for you to take constructive criticism to accept failure as a part of the process of improvement right and um ultimately i reoriented my thinking and it had a lot better outcomes for me in in both academics and in sports and i think that i've tried to keep that mentality because academia works the same way you get um you send your you know bright idea off to a colleague and they might rip it to shreds and then what do you do with the pieces of that you you know do you pick them up and retool and hone and refine is failure um a tool to refine and improve yourself or is it a chance to to give up and walk away and if you choose the to give up and walk away you have a very short and disappointing experience <laughs> i hear you talk a lot of um in in that a lot of resiliency and a lot of looking at what feels like a failure as an opportunity to grow could you briefly touch on kind of the flip side of that of ways in which privilege maybe has played a role in where you are today. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're looking at um you know probably the most privileged demographic of person that that um that you can find. I am a uh a large white male. Uh I'm from a middle class family. So I had access to every kind of natural advantage that you could have in terms of trying to make your your career as a scientist. Um in the course of my academic career, I have seen and to a degree experienced differences in the way that your platform um influences your um outcomes in in science and in education and it's um it's really very frustrating, right? To see that for example, when I went to the University of New Mexico as a graduate student, I I had a a very difficult time getting my ideas, you know, published any kind of credibility in in scientific journals and then you know ultimately I was able to to kind of poke through when I was working at the Max Planck Institute I I was just naturally um people strangers would meet me and they would give me award me an undeserved amount of credibility that just completely eclipsed anything i had ever experienced and i was almost frustrated by it because i was like i don't want your undeserved uh credibility when you know 2 months ago you know you wouldn't answer an email from me and um that that's extremely frustrating to see that play out because if that's how i experience it as a um you know middle class white guy how much of this stuff is playing out for folks that are starting from a much different um starting point and i think it's an ex- it's a huge problem and there is a pipeline in science where um it almost becomes not about the quality of your work it is it becomes purely a, a function of what platform or what relationships or what starting point you are coming from and i think we have a huge responsibility to try to f- fix that right and it's a huge you know in in a time uh like our country is facing now we have to be having some extremely tough conversations about what that looks like you know who is getting opportunities 
uh, who is not getting them and why. Um, you know, I in general, I'm somebody who's benefited extraordinarily from having those opportunities. And as a scientist, that that makes me frustrated because you realize that if we want science to be doing its best work, we need to be evaluating ideas on their merits. And I don't think we necessarily do that. And that's all dead weight loss to humanity's knowledge, right? If we are losing ideas and scholars because of where they grew up, the color of their skin, their how much money their parents made, you know, what country they're born in, these are things that are directly determining the scientific outcomes in a way that directly uh, reduces the diversity of ideas and the quality of the ideas that we produce at, from a research perspective. So thinking 10 years in the future, um, where, where do you hope to see things, um, including your own work? Yeah, it's, it's really hard to see 10 years in the future right now um, when it seems like everything is kind of up in the air. Um, from a personal standpoint, uh, I will hope that um, I'm seeing, you know, my, my first or second batch of students starting their, you know, their journey into being professional scientists. I think that's, that's probably the most important one. Um, I hope that we are able to, as a discipline of, of archaeologists, that my work and the work of my colleagues is starting to make a difference in addressing some of the big problems that our world is facing, whether it be climate change, extinctions, these kind of things. I think that more and more archaeology has be, um, has started to become aware of the importance that we direct our science towards these kind of big questions that, that the world um is facing from from the museum perspective yeah i hope that we are able to share our work with a wider range of folks um that uh you know we're we're working on some initiatives now to try to make um our museum more accessible to you know folks that that might be marginalized by a traditional museum environment um i think that our museum cares a lot about um, improving its value to folks that might be visually or hearing impaired, right? Um, yeah, so I think um, I'd like to see technology, you know, make a, a play a big role in that. And uh, from a personal life, I'm looking forward to, you know, celebrating my 10-year anniversary in Boulder um, and uh, sticking around here. Well, thinking of your personal life, give us a little glimpse into what you do when you're not in workaholic will mode. Yeah, um, it's uh, the, the pandemic has been hard for my self-imposed boundaries on work. Um, there's a lot of emails, um, but my, I mean, uh, I have a great dog. I like to go out um, into, out of the city. Um, so I like to go camping. Um, I like to hike with the dog. I like to play basketball. That's probably been the, the toughest from a COVID standpoint is that my main hobby involves pressing closely against other human beings, um, which uh, so basketball is kind of off the table. Sports is not something that 
that I'm able to do at the moment. But yeah, I, I really like to go sp- spend time outside to to camp, to hike, and to read. I think those are my main occupations other than answering emails. Yeah, Will will respond to an email like almost immediately at any time of day. Just to explain that, it's not because I'm available. It's because I have a extremely one-track mind and I can't focus if there are things on my plate. So it means that I'm trying to do something else. If I remi- <laughs> reply immediately, it's because I want to get the email away from me so that I can get back to focusing on whatever I was trying to do. <laughs> Um, so, uh, now that we're wrapping up, is there, um, you, you have your own archaeozoology, uh, lab. Is there a place where our listeners can, can follow you on social media? Yeah. So we're, um, we have, I would describe as a budding emerging presence on social media. We have a, an Instagram it's at CU archaeozoology. We have a Facebook page, um, CU archaeozoology lab on Facebook. There's also, I occasionally post, um, interesting stuff about horses on our horses and human societies Facebook page as well. Um, Okay. Well, thank you very much. Well, everyone, we just interviewed uh, Dr. Will Taylor, curator of archaeology at the University of Colorado Museum of Natural History and assistant professor in Department of Anthropology. This has been Museum Unlocked, and we'll see you next time. I'm Samantha Eads, Visitor Services Coordinator at the CU Museum. Thanks for listening to the Museum Unlocked podcast. You can follow the University of Colorado Museum of Natural History on Facebook at at CUMNH and Instagram at at CU Museum. You can also email us questions, comments, and support at cumuseum at colorado.edu. Learn more about our organization at colorado.edu slash cumuseum. And please explore our online resources for teachers and families updated weekly on our Museum from Home page 